Salutations, my friends. Welcome once again for another spin on the dark ride. I am your humble host, the man with the voice of gold, like the man with the golden gun. We expect you to die, Mr. Bond. It is I, Mr. Dark. This week, we once again journey into the realm of the weird. This being the third week of the ever-revolving door of themes here on the dark ride, It's time to visit the world of the odd, the unusual, the unexplainable, the just plain strange. So climb aboard, fasten your seatbelts, and pull that mosquito netting over your vehicle to ward off any of the stinging critters you might encounter, and let's get this show on the road, on the weird, weird road. We're going to start off today's trip over in Scotland. If we're in the land of the Tartan, then you can probably guess we'll be discussing everyone's favorite lock lotterer, Nessie. Out of the telegraph, the story from this week tells us that the Loch Ness Monster is plausible after a fossil discovery. The discovery that some plesiosaurs could have lived in freshwater has reignited the debate on Nessie. The quintessential Loch Ness Monster sighting is typically that of a large, long-necked creature that appears as a head and neck, or a series of humps protruding from the water. Over the years, this has led some to speculate that the creature could be a plesiosaur, a type of prehistoric aquatic reptile, as depicted by an oft-photographed model that can be found outside the Loch Ness Exhibition Center at Drumnadrocket on the western shore of the loch. Scottish is so fun to pronounce. Gaelic. While many have played down this possibility, a new fossil discovery has recently added some renewed credence to the theory by suggesting that some plesiosaurs actually did live in fresh water. Researchers at the University of Bath recently discovered the fossil remains of several small plesiosaurs that lived in a river system 100 million years ago in what is now the Sahara Desert. The find indicates that these creatures lived in freshwater alongside crocodiles, fish, turtles, and dozens of other species. We don't really know why the plesiosaurs are in freshwater, said study co-author Dr. Nick Longrich. It's a bit controversial, but who's to say that because we paleontologists have always called them marine reptiles that they had to live in the sea? Lots of marine lineages invaded freshwater. For around 100 years or more, Nessie and similar monsters could not exist because large water animals like her were strictly sea creatures and never lived in fresh water, ever. The scientists settled you cretins. Stop bothering us with your sightings and photographs and other evidence. We cannot be bothered. Wait, what was that? Okay, 
Well, turns out they can actually live in fresh water. But they're still not real. Someone get me more tea. And friends, that's why I believe in the Fordian way of thinking. While academics sit in universities and tell us certain things are impossible, Fordians throw evidence at them and tell them to prove it. Because all too often, actual scientists out in the field do what happened here, and voila, proof lands on our side of the field. In this month's edition of Has Nobody Seen a Horror Film?, we have this little gem of a story. A group of people who should absolutely be jailed for their own good and the safety of others have created spider zombies to do their bidding. I'm not making this up. The title of this story is, and I quote, Necrobotic Spiders. Scientists turn dead bodies into zombie robots. I swear to you that this is a real story about real things, and I am not making this up. In a new study, re engineers repurposed dead spiders to serve as mechanical grippers that can blend into natural environments while picking up objects that outweigh them. They call these zombie spiders necrobotics. It happens to be the case that the spider, after it's deceased, is the perfect architecture for small-scale, naturally-derived grippers, says Daniel Preston of Rice's George R. Brown School of Engineering in a university release. This area of soft robotics is a lot of fun because we get to use previously untapped types of actuation and materials. The spider falls into this line of inquiry. It's something that hasn't been used before, but has a lot of potential, the researcher continues. Fun? Rice engineers used wolf spiders for their necrobotics research. They were able to lift more than 130% of their own body weight and had the grippers manipulate a circuit board, move objects, and lift another spider. Researchers say smaller spiders can carry heavier loads in comparison to their size. Larger spiders, on the other hand, carry a smaller load in comparison to its own body weight. Lead author Faye Yap says their research began in 2019. We were moving stuff around in the lab and we noticed a curled up spider at the edge of the hallway, no chap. We were really curious as to why spiders curl up after they die. This is 100% a villain origin story. I'm sure it's already been used in a Spider-Man comic. And now it's real. And we're all doomed. Spiders curl up after death because they don't have antagonistic muscle pairs like biceps and triceps in humans. They only have flexor muscles which allow their legs to curl in and they extend them outward by hydraulic pressure. When they die, they lose the ability to actively pressurize their bodies. That's why they curl up, explained Jap. At the time, we were thinking, oh, this is super interesting. We wanted to find a way to leverage this mechanism. You can hear the sheer glee in this woman's voice. And this is where the article goes completely off the rails. Even though some might be wary of this type of experiment, Researchers say turning dead spiders into robots doesn't qualify as reanimation. That's a real sentence. 
someone wrote that actual sentence in a real article and released it with a straight face. This is the world we live in. This is the universe we live in. Someone is in a universe without Donald Trump where David Bowie is still alive. We're in the universe where we have that sentence and this reality. Despite it looking like it might have come back to life, we're certain that it's inanimate, and we're using it in this case strictly as a material derived from a once-living spider, says Preston. It's providing us with something really useful. Yes, sure, absolutely nothing that could go wrong here. These people certainly have no hubris at all and are not voiding their bowels all over the inherent laws of God and man. There will surely be no consequences for that in the way of some kind of zombie spider apocalypse that will leave us to a screaming, horrifying, necrotic, eight-legged death. I mean, is it me? Did I take the crazy pills? Is there anyone that's okay with this? The only thing to do is imprison everyone involved and nuke the site from orbit. Only way to be sure. Returning to far less completely horrific and icky things that we do not have to beg the good Lord's forgiveness for, in a follow-up to last month's discussion on the government's response to the previous release of UAP-slash-UFO footage that we have this from The Hill. Now, The Hill is not what you'd call a conspiracy wonk website. It's a mainstream, very popular political website. In no way is this subject matter typical of the outlet. And the article is written by a guy who worked for the State Department under the Obama administration. Not exactly a kook. Stunned by UFOs, exasperated fighter pilots get little help from the Pentagon, reads the headline. In April 2014, four naval aviators narrowly escaped disaster. Just as they entered highly controlled airspace for a training exercise, their two F-A-18F fighter jets nearly collided with an unidentified flying object. To the frustration of dozens of their fellow aviators, such a near catastrophe was inevitable. With aviation safety alerts as their only recourse, frustrated aviators and their commanders noted that the UFOs pose, quote, a severe threat to naval aviation and a, quote, critical risk to flight safety. Just days before the April 2014 incident, the squad's exasperated commander wrote that, quote, it is only a matter of time before this results in a mid-air collision, unquote. A few weeks later, the skipper of another East Coast squadron warned, quote, I feel it may be only a matter of time before one of our F-A-18 aircraft has a mid-air collision. Now, this is critical. The eventual congressional committee held about this said nothing about near-air collisions, nothing about any of this. It painted the threat as a non-threat, as being 100% standard drones, mostly from Chinese vessels for the purpose of surveillance. Here's a man directly involved in one of the incidents documented, referring directly to reports of similar incidents and concerns from commanders who are absolutely not discussing quadcopters. Quadcopters do not threaten F-A-18s. The concept is absurd. Continuing. Despite the frequency of the encounters and the severity of the hazard, it took the Navy five years to adopt a formal UFO reporting structure. 
The first batch of these reports, heavily redacted and spanning only a few months in 2019, makes clear that the U.S. government faces a significant challenge. In one UFO incident, an aviator reported that he had, quote, never seen anything like this before. In another encounter, an aviator, quote, noticed an object with flight characteristics unlike anything I had seen in my redacted years of redacted, implying a particularly anomalous encounter. Yet another pilot's report states that, quote, she had never seen redacted like it. The UFO did not change position like an aircraft would and was too high to be a ship, unquote. For fighter pilots armed with an array of advanced sensors, the confusion and bewilderment reflected in the reports is striking. One aviator, quote, had a difficult time explaining the redacted, unquote. In another incident, a pilot could only describe a UFO, quote, in a puzzled voice over the radio. Yet another aviator described a UFO that, quote, appeared as odd as it sounds to be redacted. I adore these redactions, as if our imaginations can't fill in things worse than what is actually in these. Moving on. Former Navy fighter pilot Ryan Graves served with the aviators involved in the 2014 near collision. In an interview, I asked Graves, now a vocal advocate for aviation safety via sober, scientific investigation of UFOs, about the recently released reports. I see frustration. I see confusion about what the aviators are seeing, Graves told me. That's not normal language in the UFO reports. That's not how we operate. Referring to a recent congressional hearing on UFOs, Graves drove this point home, telling me, In the last hearing, it was presented as, We don't know what these objects are, but everything's under control. Hey, look at this video. It kind of looks like a balloon. That, I felt, was disingenuous especially when we consider the language the aviators are using in the declassified UFO reports, Graves said. Pointing to several accounts in which aviators appear to methodically rule out mundane explanations for their UFO encounters, Graves told me, to the best of their ability, these men and women are not putting their balloon sightings on these forms. They are ruling prosaic explanations out as much as they can. And there we go. He's being a bit snarky, but trying to stay serious. Realistically, you can kind of tell he wants to call all this horse pucky. It's a massive insult to the veterans and current pilots that they can't tell a drone or a balloon from what they're clearly describing in the reports that they were ordered to make. They say, fine, make these reports, and then they're essentially mocked for making them. He talks about that next. According to Graves, I see aviators searching and looking for help, looking for answers, and I see them getting nothing back. I guarantee they're angry that this is interfering with their job. People seem exasperated, he continued. Expressing his own frustration, Graves said that it's not the aviator's responsibility to report UFOs. They have much more important things to be doing. Just in case you have any further doubts about the drones and balloons story, Graves puts an end to that once and for all. Asked whether the UFOs could be mundane objects such as balloons and drones, Graves told me, We don't see those out there in training areas. I see those near airports. I see those over the continental U.S., but I don't see those in our working areas. We're way out there. In some cases, hundreds of miles out to sea. And yet there's air traffic operating, and they're operating in ways that are befuddling our aviators, Graves said. If the mysterious objects were drones, Graves speculated, 
quote, either they have some source of energy that allows them to stay airborne for very long periods of time, or there is some massive operation involving hundreds, if not thousands of drones and boats, and they are constantly launching and landing, and somehow we haven't seen any of that. Even if they were submarine launched, we would see them descending to the ocean at some point. We'd see something. Even if they just blew up, we'd see something, he said. Ultimately, drones and balloons, quote, aren't that mystical to fighter pilots, Graves said. If I see them on the radar and I can see how they're moving in the airspeed, it's not going to confuse me. In stark contrast to the military's recent UFO reports, Graves said, there's no mystery with drones and balloons. But the mystery only deepens as Graves recalls the shape of the objects observed by aviators off the East Coast. One of the pilots involved in the 2014 near collision described the UFO as a dark cube inside a clear sphere with no wings or obvious means of propulsion. Ah yes, the old dark cube hovering inside a clear sphere drone. I think that one is on Amazon for about 250 bucks. Need to score me one of those. Get some clear shots of fireworks next 4th of July. In the end, Graves wants science, not the Department of Defense, to look into this. Find out what these things are and how to cope with them. Let's relieve that burden from them. Let's carefully reconsider our classification processes. Let's enable a process to move UFO-related data through a review and declassification process that is governed by an oversight committee with DOD, academic, industry, and civilian constituents, he said. We need to enable new processes that allow new minds and new experts to analyze the data holistically. So there you have it. The ball is back in the government's court. It's clear that the days of just shuffling anything strange in the skies under the carpet and calling everyone involved a kook are over. Stuff is out there. We don't know what they are, who's controlling them, or what they're up to, and they pose a threat to American lives. Like Graves, I'm not saying we shoot at them. I'm saying we take strides to scientifically examine them and find out what they are. Because they aren't drones. And now... To close out this episode of The Weird, I'm going to bring you a personal story. Now, I've told this story before in an outlet or two, but those versions are lost to time, so I want it to be preserved here. When I was a teenager, maybe 14 or 15, so we're talking early to mid-80s, I lived in a small town in Missouri, south of Kansas City. If you pay attention to this very podcast, you can even figure out the one. My father loved to fish. If he could just fish, he'd probably have done that most of his waking life, although he'd eventually feel useless and find something to work on. We moved to this small town from the greater Kansas City area because my dad's best friend, Gordy, had moved there years before and wouldn't shut up about it. He loved it. Eventually, my parents pulled a green acres on me, claiming the city was far too dangerous, and dragged me kicking and screaming to the sticks at age nine. Gordy and my dad stayed fairly tight throughout his life. Gordy had about 30 acres south of town while we lived in town. What there was of it. Ye, and I must insist, haw. One weekend, Gordy had told my dad that the swath of land across the dirt road from him had a great fishing pond in it. I don't recall how he found this out, but that was a very Gordy thing to have discovered. Now this huge plot of land, farm, ranch, whatever you'd call it, was a massive block, mostly of good old Missouri underbrush. 
We don't get woods in Missouri, at least not that far north. The Ozarks are a bit different, but this is way north of that. It's smaller, skinnier trees, bushes, brambles, and just generally unpassable, well, underbrush. Unless and until it's cleared intentionally by man or unintentionally by fire or flood, that's that. You're really not going in there unless you find an animal trail used by deer or small game that you can traverse. The northern half of this plot of land was underbrush, unmanaged, untamed. The south half had been cleared, had the big house with the huge drive all the way out to the highway, and a big plot of pasture land. Whoever owned this plot was clearly wealthy because that was a massive amount of land and a big, nice house. Somewhere on the edge of this untamed batch of woods, closer to the center of the property, was a pond, supposedly. This pond had apparently been stocked with fish. The thinking, then, was the owner was letting the pond populate with plenty of fish to catch, then he'd clear the woods around it on one side and start fishing it. Gordy had heard it was stocked, and wouldn't you know, he said he knew of a trail into those woods from the road across from his place that could get into the pond from the brush side. They could get in, catch some fish, and the guy would never know. He'd never miss as much as they could carry, and they'd throw most of them back anyway. Bring a machete and plan on maybe chopping through some thicket to get to it, they could have a good morning of fishing on this rich old boy's dime. Yes, to a great extent, they were still ornery 12-year-olds in 40-something bodies. They headed out early. Later that day, maybe around noon... I was in the living room playing video games and my mom was doing mom stuff in the kitchen. My dad bursts through the front door. He is disheveled. His clothes are filthy, ripped, covered in leaves and brambles. His arms are marked with long cuts embedded with more brambles, stickers as we called them, thorns snapped off in his skin. He is soaked with sweat. He is breathless as if he's run all the way home. His eyes are wide. I have never seen my father like this. He's an old bricklayer. He doesn't get upset. He doesn't get afraid. This man in front of us, he's like an animal cornered by a predator. 100% adrenaline and terror. We, of course, rush to him. As he talks, we start ministering to him. I'd always been the official splinter remover. I was just good at it, and as a man who worked with his hands, he got a ton of them. These splinters were chunks. Massive thorns. Those stickers I mentioned, these things that look like coronaviruses, I don't know what they are. They stick you and they get caught in your clothes and skin. They're awful to get out because they're barbed. He's got more than a dozen in his arms. Later we find a couple in his neck. My mom is getting his shirt off, taking account of his wounds. Shallow, but many. Slashes, cuts, stabs. He tells us what's happened because we're getting very, very freaked out. He and Gordy went to the trail as planned. He picked up Gordy and drove them down the dirt road a piece to where they thought the trail started. They walked a bit, went through the barbed wire fence, and found the trailhead. Animal trail, obviously. Nobody is taking strolls here. They had poles and tackle boxes with them, and at least one machete to clear brush if they had to, but these were rough guys who grew up playing in the brush, so it was no big deal, and the trail actually got wider after a while, which surprised them. They were worried that the owner had already started clearing brush and they'd have to get out of there. Eventually, after a bunch of twists and turns, they came across it. A clearing, right in the center of these woods. Maybe 50 feet across and half as wide. Just a little hollow area made out of the underbrush, with the trees left overhead, almost like a ceiling. Across the clearing, they could see the trail continued. 
But before they could really take in what they were looking at, it hit them. The smell. My dad said it smelled like poop and skunk and rotting things all at the same time wrapped into one. He said he'd never smelled anything like it. He said Gordy almost threw up. It was weird because they didn't smell it before, just when they hit the clearing. But it was bad, which is why they stopped in their tracks. Before they could get further than what is that, they heard and saw it simultaneously. Across the clearing, at the entrance to the path on the opposite side, they heard shaking, like the brush over there was being rattled around. They saw the trees shaking, too. Now, these are thin trees, but not so thin that you can just grab one and give it a shake and see it from 50 feet away. They just aren't like huge oak trees. Then they saw a bunch of them shaking, high up, 8 to 10 feet. Something really big was moving over there, and it was moving a lot. If the guys weren't moving before, they were frozen now between the smell and that movement. First thing that hit them was bears, but they knew there were no bears in that part of Missouri, if at all. Then they thought lion, because Gordy had once had a full-sized African lion show up on his doorstep. That's another story. But that was panic talking, because there wasn't another lion on the loose years later, and it wouldn't be shaking trees and bushes. Before they could ponder what else that size could be shaking trees and brush, the scream happened. It was shrill, high-pitched. Not a growl, not a howl, not a roar. Nothing you'd recognize as big animal. It was a blood-curdling, high-pitched scream. And it was loud. It came from right across the other side of that clearing at the entrance into the path. Now, Gordy was never a brave man and went straight into the brush towards the dirt road. No path, no nothing. He punched a Gordy-sized hole into that stuff and just went the most direct route to civilization. My dad was made of sterner stuff, but the second scream convinced him that turning around and running like absolute hell was the best bet. And he did. He never looked back to find out if he was being followed. He was not terribly cautious on the path and did not stick to it closely, thus his physical condition. He wound up coming out about a quarter mile from his truck, ran back to it, and hauled absolute ass back home. He never saw anything. It stayed hidden. He didn't know what it was and did not care. He knew it didn't want him there, and that was fine by him. He did say that nothing in his life had ever scared him that badly before, and no amount of money in the world would ever get him to set foot in those woods again. Ever. I'm the one that brought Bigfoot up. My dad? My dad was always interested in weird stuff, but he was also a skeptic. His attitude was, just don't go messing with it. Leave it alone. Why does everyone always have to go messing with it? My father would have watched ghost hunting shows endlessly if he'd lived to see them. Get him. He deserves it. What'd you go in there for in the first place, you big dummy? They told you it was haunted. Oh, now he's pulling out his little light box. I hope the ghost makes you eat that box. Anyway, he didn't know and really didn't care. Did not like talking about it because he didn't like talking about being that scared. Me? I know that Bigfoot has been associated with bad smells. I know it's been associated with making beds and nests in thick forests. I know it's been sighted in Missouri. 
I know it shakes trees and bangs logs to scare away trespassers. And I know it's associated not with growls or roars, but with very specific high-pitched shrieks. There are recordings out there on the net if you want to go looking. They're unsettling. Before he died, I had a recording of one I found during my early days on the interwebs. I wanted to play it for my dad to see if it was what he heard. He didn't want to hear it. And with that unsettling little tale, we roll back into the station and call this week's ride to an end. I hope you have enjoyed this little excursion into the weird, friends and neighbors. I have more personal tales of strangeness that I'll tell in the future, so don't you worry. It won't all be stuff I pull from the wires. Next week, it looks like we return to the wacky and wild world of Anything Goes. And oh, you lucky dogs, I have something very special cooked up for you. I've been experimenting with some upgrades to our little dark ride here, and I'm hoping to have them finished in time to try them out by next week. If I can only find some test subjects, I can suck a... <laughs> so swing by next week, and you might just be the lucky <laughs> winners to be the first to try these improvements. We'll see. You may not win the Mega Millions at the lottery, but you can all be winners right here with me when anything goes. Till then, remember not to stick any appendages inside the cages, no matter how friendly the animals may appear, because life is a dark ride. These are the credits. Don't skip them. These people are important. All content written, produced, recorded, and otherwise the responsibility of Justin Dark for This is a Dark Production Company. All rights reserved, 2022. Podcast logo courtesy of Evangelist 7. Thanks, Jimmy. Production company logo and artwork courtesy of Designs That Kill. Thanks, Laura and Tyler. Contact us at darkproductionco at gmail.com or on Twitter or Facebook at darkprodco. That's D-A-R-K-P-R-O-D-C-O. Darkprodco. You get it. Contact us there. This is a dark podcast.